to order. And uh, I want to thank uh, all of you for participating. Uh, we have very important business for the committee today. And uh, this is the second in a series uh, on the international response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what we can do about it and the future of prevention, preparedness, and response. Uh, let me take uh, just a moment uh, to talk about what we're attempting to do here. You know, the, around here in the Senate, uh, exaggeration and hyperbole is uh, kind of the order of the day. And uh, so I'm always uh, reluctant to say this truly could be one of the most important things we as members of this committee do. Uh, what uh, the world is experiencing today, what the United States of America is facing today is uh, one of the most significant challenges that uh, a lot of us will face in our lifetime. Uh, the, the bad news, the really bad news is that uh, it uh, is entirely possible that it will happen again. And I say this, uh, of course, because the experts tell us that uh, this uh, virus uh, that uh, made the leap from one species to another, from bat species to human species, uh, can very easily happen again. And if there's 2,000 of these viruses out there, we have no idea what they can do when they get into a human being. Bat populations, the experts, the scientists tell us, uh, uh, have uh, had identified within their ranks about 2,000 different uh, viruses. So uh, having said that, uh, we need to look forward. Uh, and uh, I want to stress what I'm trying to do with this and what I hope all of us will join in trying to do is to look forward. Um, there's a lot of uh, hearings going on. There's a lot of uh, hyperbole going on. There's a lot of uh, finger pointing and uh, a lot of blame assignment. But that's not what. Uh, I'm trying to focus on here, and I hope we would all avoid that. Certainly, uh, uh, a person can't help but think about how did this happen? Who's responsible for this? Who could have done things better? Uh, we do want to see uh, how we can do things better, but I would hope, uh, I would sincerely hope that all of us are committed to uh, the idea that what we're trying to do is to keep from happening, keep this from happening again, not from trying to. Uh, and feather somebody that uh, should have done things better in the past. Um, there's been a number of uh, criticisms levied against the World Health Organization. I've spent a considerable period of time talking to the people at WHO. I've been impressed with the fact that they themselves recognize that uh, uh, that things should be looked at, and uh, and uh, they they like us uh, are uh, would really like to see that uh, things work better in the future. Heaven help us uh, if this, uh, this happens again. Uh, in any event, uh, to that end, uh, there has been uh, legislation prepared. Uh, there's been a number of pieces of legislation. And uh, I'm going to urge the committee uh, in the strongest way possible for everyone to get together and pull the wagon on this, uh, get to the place where we can have a piece of legislation that will, uh, will actually help in the future. Uh, as I said, the there's th this future is so important when it comes when it comes to this. How we react next time is going to be uh, very important, particularly if it turns out to be a worse virus than what. Um, you know, the world is not going to know probably what uh, what we did, uh, and, they, and if 
we fail, they probably won't even know that we made an effort. To but uh, all of us run for these offices because we want to make a difference, particularly into the future. And this is our opportunity to do this. This is my 40th year uh, in a Senate body. I led a Senate body for uh, uh, over two decades. I, I know good faith effort when I see it, and I'm seeing a lot of good faith effort here on a bipartisan basis to develop something that we can go forward in the future. There is, uh, of the 22 members on this committee, there is a tremendous pool of talent on both sides of the aisle. Certainly, uh, Ranking Member Senator Menendez has spent many, many years in the service uh, of uh, the United States dealing with the challenges, and they are challenges that we face. Uh, with other countries. Uh, he brings that to the table and much more. Uh, across this committee, we have people who are have been deeply involved in committees on health and human services, on homeland security, on armed uh, services, uh, intelligence, and other committees. Everybody brings something to the table. What I'm hoping is we have a product that will reflect the best of all of us uh, in bringing the matter into a bill. As I've said over and over again, uh, the bill that uh, that uh, myself and Senator Murphy have introduced is written on paper. It is not written on stone. Uh, we want the best possible uh, ideas and the best possible outcomes uh, as we move forward. And everything's on the table, and uh, there's no pride of authorship here, and I hope everyone can set aside notions and move forward when we need, uh, obviously, a more innovative approach to this problem as it, uh, as it uh, hopefully, but uh, probably will uh, exist in the future. Hopefully will not, but probably will exist in the future. We're fortunate to have with us a panel of experts with an impressive range of expertise today from infectious disease detection and treatment to diplomatic engagement and emergency response. And we know that all of these are incredibly important as we uh, put together a holistic approach uh, to this problem. Each of you brings something unique to the table. Thank you for sharing your insights today. During our last hearing, we focused on a number of key issues, including the need for uh, World Health Organization reform. Uh, again, uh, simply because we talk about World Health Organization reform, uh, we don't want to demonize people who have made incredible efforts to try to uh, address the problems we have today. I'm aware of the challenges and differences that uh, several of our panelists faced when they worked with the World Health Organization during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, which ultimately led to uh, a number of things and bring us to where we are here today. Well, some structural improvements have been made to the World Health Organization since the Ebola situation. Uh, it appears we may be repeating history today don't want a much uh, grander and deadlier scale. After Ebola, of course, the uh, global security agenda was formed, and uh, it uh, didn't get us where we need to be either. Some have suggested that the World Health Organization has neither the mandate nor the capacity to hold countries accountable for failing to uphold obligations under the, under the international health regulations. And uh, that probably can be fixed. Indeed, as I talked with the World Health Organization, they made credible cases as to why they couldn't do some of the things that they really wanted to do. Those are things that we really need to protect. Others have suggested uh, that the World Health Organization does not have the will. That's a harder fix, 
but uh, again, uh, we need to focus on what we can do about it. And so it's only appropriate for us to recognize what the World Health Organization is. It is a convening mechanism, uh, a guardian of things, and a clearinghouse of norms and best practices. And uh, we probably ought to examine our own conscious consciences and ask us if we are asking the World Health Organization to do something that it is not. I've repeatedly asked, what entity do you call when an outbreak begins before it gets out of control? What entity is the fire department? Uh, again, I want to especially say that we should avoid condemning uh, what, uh, what happened in the past and look forward to the future. I've repeatedly been disappointed by the response as to who is the fire department. One thing is clear. It's not the World Health Organization, at least not as it exists today. That doesn't mean it can't be fixed. So what entity is it and what entity responds to the alarm? The mandate, uh, the mandate capacity and will do not yet exist to whom and where should that be vested? That question is wide open. And the answer that uh, we need and the right answer uh, is not an answer that is dictated by a politically taking side. What entity raises the alarm? How can we improve and expand early warning at a global level so we can get ahead of an outbreak before it spins out of control? The global health security agenda provides a useful and, uh, and only a framework for addressing these issues. How can we more effectively operationalize it? As I said, our suggestions to point is only for discussion and written on paper and not stolen. And how can we incentivize countries to prioritize global health security, strengthen preparedness and response, and share critical global health data? Is there a way we can better support countries that have that, uh, with demonstrated a will, but a low uh, capacity to uh, operationalize the will? And importantly, how do we incentivize innovation, including for the development, manufacturing, and equitable deployment of vaccines and other measures? Uh, these are difficult challenges that require serious solutions. While we are rightfully focused on the immediate COVID-19 response, particularly as the Southern Hemisphere moves into the, uh, into the winter months, we can't afford to wait. This is not our first pandemic, and unless we can figure out some solutions, it won't be our last. We have put a number of ideas forward in a bipartisan bill, the Global Health Security and Diplomacy Act. It's a bill that we hope everyone will take as a starting point and as a discussion point. I'm hopeful that our discussions today will help us further refine the ideas in that bill so we can answer these questions, chart a responsible path forward, save lives, and ultimately uh, protect America from future waves of infection. I've been impressed with the way the committee has been working together. We're taking ideas from everyone, Murphy and I continue to meet to try to, uh, uh, to try to operationalize the ideas that we're getting from other members of the committee. I thank our witnesses for their contributions to this. Again, I strongly urge uh, that if we are to succeed, and, and we must succeed for the future of America and the future of the world, uh, we work on solutions and not necessarily on focusing of the failures uh, of the recent response. With that, uh, I thank everyone again for joining us today. I would urge everyone to work in good faith to try to actually reach some conclusion. Like I said, 
is I think one of the most important things we'll probably do with our service here in the United States Senate. And with that, I want to recognize uh, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for uh, convening another hearing on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. As of June 26, 2020, the World Health Organization had recorded just under 9.5 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 and more than 484,000 deaths worldwide. More than 2 million of those cases are right here in the United States. This disease has claimed more than 120,000 American lives in the span of five months. I know it well, because unfortunately, at least 14 to 15,000 of those are from my home state of New Jersey. And it has proven resilient and pernicious with new spikes across the United States and China and alarming increases in the number of cases in South Africa, India, and Brazil. This pandemic presents one of the most complex and novel threats the United States, indeed the world, has faced in several generations. And it's clear that even if we stop the spread of the disease here, which we certainly have not, without a serious global effort to understand and confront it, COVID-19 can and will return to our shores. If ever there was a need for the United States to be an active leader in an international coalition to respond to a common threat, it is now. We simply cannot safeguard, safeguard American lives without one. Unfortunately, the United States has not yet risen to meet this challenge. We have seen a haphazard response going so far as to effectively withdrawing from the very international institution best poised to respond to this crisis. We have alienated critical partners and have been absent at critical convening meetings, all of this at the expense of the health and safety of the American people. I believe there is more America can and must do, and that Congress has a critical role to play. In good faith, as you referred to, uh, Mr. Chairman, in May, all the Democratic members of this committee introduced comprehensive legislation laying out concrete actions the United States could take to lead in the global response. The COVID-19 International Response and Recovery Act, or CIRA, presents a clear strategy to confront the ongoing pandemic and prepare the United States to deal with the next and compels the Trump administration to constructively engage with other countries, international organizations, and multilateral fora to stop the spread of this deadly pandemic. Specifically, our bill authorizes an additional $9 billion in funding to fight the COVID-19 pandemic through contributions towards vaccine research at the Coalition for Preparedness and Innovations, a contribution to the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria for its COVID-19 response mechanism, additional funding for emergency overseas humanitarian assistance in response to the pandemic, ensuring that these funds are provided both to the UN for its global response plan, as well as directly to NGOs working on the front lines, and a new surge financing authority at the US International Development Finance Corporation that would allow the DFC to expedite decisions and make strategic investments quickly to aid in COVID-19 reconstruction efforts. CIRA also plates in place, puts in place mechanisms to help us better prepare for the next pandemic. It requires an annual intelligence estimate on pandemic threats 
and establishes a White House advisor for global health security to coordinate a whole of government U.S. response to global health security emergencies aimed at improving both domestic and international capacity to prevent, respond, and detect epidemic and pandemic threats. It clearly delineates the role for the State Department, USAID, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in responding to pandemic threats. And it directs the U.S. Executive Director to the World Bank to begin negotiations to establish a trust fund at the World Bank designed not to compete with or supplant the World Health Organization, but to work in tandem with the World Health Organization on incentivizing countries to mobilize their own resources for epidemic and pandemic preparedness. Mr. Chairman, more than 700 Americans are dying uh, each day. Neither the finger-pointing blame game, race-baiting statements linked to the origins of the disease, nor a strategy centered on denial will win the battle against COVID-19. It is painfully apparent that Congress will have to lead in this effort, just as it led in domestic relief and recovery efforts. I enjoy and appreciate and embrace your call for us to develop a proposal in the committee that boldly and robustly addresses the current crisis, ensures that we are adequately prepared for the next one, and aids countries across the globe with recovery. Anything less falls short of the legacy created through initiatives such as the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief and the Marshall, <clears throat> and the Marshall Plan. So I welcome our witnesses as well and look forward to our discussion. Thank you, uh, Senator Menendez. Uh, uh, well spoken. I think that uh, your uh, reference to the uh, success that we have in addressing the AIDS uh, pandemic uh, is appropriate. When when I started out to construct the bill, uh, that was uh, as I said a starting point. Uh, I used uh, the successes that uh, the PEPFAR had. Uh, certainly, if if we can replicate that for future pandemics, I think uh, we, we will all be given a, a great credit uh, by history fail. Uh, that, uh, that's, that's another issue. Um, your remarks about the United States being the leader in this are absolutely right. We have a moral obligation uh, based on our uh, standing in the world, and we should join together to do that. Uh, your, those ideas, some of the ideas that you've had are, are, uh, are novel to me. Your, your discussion about an annual threat assessment of a pandemic, I, I think is appropriate. We have that every year on the Intelligence Committee, but unfortunately it's mixed with every other threat there is to the United States, and they are, uh, they are legion. And uh, it gets a uh, nod that there is a threat uh, of a pandemic. It frequently takes the uh, form of assessing what terrorists would do or malign uh, influences would do and don't really focus on uh, what a pandemic might look like. And I think that part of that may be due to the fact that these pandemics are, are different. Each one's different. It has things that are the same, but each virus has a, a different way uh, of acting uh, and reacting in the world. So it gets a shift in, uh, in the uh, intelligence probably ought to be undertaken by uh, either uh, help and human services or by us or by, by someone who can spend a little bit of time with it. So that's a great idea. 
So with that, uh, let's uh, let's move to our uh, our panel. We have been a very impressive panel here today. I must say that the last panel I thought was good. Uh, it helped clear up my thinking on this. Um, one of the things I learned, I think, from the last panel about how uh, there just isn't a silver bullet that it, it's going to take a coordinated effort by many, many different agencies and countries for that. And today we're going to uh, take a little different approach on that. But these people have uh, great experience. Uh, if we were to go through each of their accomplishments, we'd be here all day. So with uh, each of their forgiveness, I'm going to give uh, just very brief introductions. Our first, our first witness is uh, Ambassador uh, Mark uh, Dybul. And he is an accomplished diplomat, physician, and uh, medical researcher. He currently serves as a professor in the Department of Medicine and as co-director of the Center for Global Health Practice and Impact at Georgetown University. He previously served as the executive director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, and as the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator. Certainly an impressive resume as uh, he joins us uh, today. So with that, Ambassador Dybul, the floor is Thank you, Chairman Rush, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. It's a great privilege to be back before this important body. I'd like to thank the committee, the entire Congress, for its steadfast bipartisan efforts to ensure the U.S. has been the unquestioned leader in global health for decades. COVID-19 has made clear that a global pandemic requires a global response, and we are not quite there yet. But there's good news. What is needed is not rocket scientists. A number of countries who did well in the early stages of COVID-19 were not faster at setting up systems. They already had them. They were prepared. Therefore, they never had to enforce total lockdowns. Other countries rapidly put in place test, trace, and quarantine systems. And as a result, they were able to safely begin reopening within six weeks, identifying and containing additional outbreaks as they occurred. I'm very grateful to the chairman and his bipartisan co-sponsors, as well as to the ranking member, we're putting forward proposals to help ensure the U.S. coordinates international bilateral programs and to ensure non-duplicative multilateral institutions. I listened with great interest to the hearing the committee held on June 18th. From my experience, I would like to offer with all humility one perspective on the chairman's question, who is the fire department? Whom do we call? From a bilateral perspective, the proposal to create a coordinator at the State Department resonates. From the perspective of legislative oversight, the coordinator would seem to be the fire department for bilateral engagement. When PEPFAR was developed, and I was fortunate to be involved in the creation, the small group that put together the plan, we struggled with where to house it. A coordinator at state was, to paraphrase Churchill's quip on democracy, the worst approach except for everything else. Multiple parts of the US government must be engaged in global health, as you've noted, including pandemics. USAID is deeply involved in many aspects of health, as well as those that impact health. And of course, USAID leads on humanitarian responses. CDC is the premier government health organization in the world. It's the only agency in the US government, armamentarium, that spans domestic and global engagement, including pandemics and pandemics, and is involved with provides technical support to, and is looked to and respected by governments and institutions in high, middle, and low-income countries. And as we know from this pandemic, we must be involved with every country. CDC is built for what is most needed for global and national pandemic preparedness and response. However, more than with PEPFAR, the national security apparatus is needed, as you both noted. 
That requirement complicates full coordination from the Department of State. In that regard, it's important to note that both of the proposals identify the essential role of the National Security Council, as has been noted. Perhaps there's also an opportunity for cross-committee authorization and appropriation legislation, which is not without some precedent. From a multilateral perspective, the world has come together and created the Global Health Security Agenda, or GSHA, as has been noted. However, GHSA is not the fire department. GHSA provides an action plan for every country to have an emergency operations center, or EOC, capable of mounting a response to an outbreak within two hours. At least in my view, the EOC must also be responsible for continual surveillance down to the community level with systematic reporting to rapidly detect an outbreak. We need a global EOC as the fire department. The global EOC should be multi-sectoral and the principal functions of it would be to learn from the past, what has worked and not worked during previous epidemics and pandemics, to conduct regular simulations of local outbreaks with national, regional, regional and global responses to them, rigorously interrogating gaps and weaknesses, to support regional and national EOCs to be fully operational, and coordinate with a financing mechanism, what we'll call the fire hydrant, to help ensure optimal use of resources. A global effort on pandemics and a global EOC cannot be effective without the deep engagement of WHO. It is a necessary, although not sufficient player. In my view, WHO has done a good job under the circumstances and has vastly improved from Ebola. I've known the Director General, Dr. Tedros, since 2004, when he was the newly installed junior minister. I watched him systematically transform one of the worst performing ministries of health in the world to one of the best. He's been a steadfast partner and ally of the U.S. and global health, and he's taken on the difficult fast task of reforming WHO and has made significant strides. As the first African Director General, he also has the unwavering support of African countries, and as the second most populous continent, Africa's total engagement is essential for pandemic detection and control. Finally, I know from experience that you can't, the U.S. can best drive reform when we are fully engaged. He can't place a bet if he ain't at the table. And if we are not at the table, others are ready to step in and take our place, including China and Russia. In my view, a financing facility, the fire hydrant related to, but organizationally separate from a global EOC would create the op optimal conditions for success. One already exists to procure vaccines for low and middle income countries, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, However, there's a great deal of preparedness, detection, and response that needs to be funded before and after a vaccine becomes available and for future pandemics. The principal function of the fire hydrant would be to finance the priorities identified by the global, regional, and national EOCs, the fire departments. I appreciate the discussion of, of Gavi and the global fund models during the government panel hearing. Of course, World Bank houses catalytic and trust funds, as the ranking member noted, and something could be created new all have pros and cons. It seems to me the best approach would be for the administration to play a leadership role working with key governments and stakeholders in a time-bound way with parameters set by Congress to identify the most likely mechanism to succeed now and for the future. Succeed in attracting funds and implementing pandemic preparedness, detection, and response. In the short term, Congress has an important opportunity. This committee has a long history of supporting both U.S. leadership and the commitment of significant resources, including at least $12 billion in the HERO Act will save lives 
help protect the U.S. from additional waves of, of, the pan, of this pandemic and send an important message abroad as well as here at home. And there's no time to lose. You might have seen the, the troubling report today of a new swine flu. While there is yet no report of human-to-human -human contact, there is reason for concern the next pandemic might be upon us. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, members of the committee, no country is safe and no one is safe until everyone is safe. The good news is that this is one of the most solvable problems facing the world. Throughout history, we have seen that when we come together and look forward, outward, and with hope, there is no problem we cannot solve. And in particular, the U.S. has shown that when we take a leadership role, it is a blessing of enlightened self-interest, serving others while protecting and promoting our interests and our lives. I thank the committee for what you are doing to lead again. Well, thank you very much. Uh, for, first of all, it's uh, it's good to hear that uh, when you uh, when the PEPTAR structure was uh, PEPTAR structure was put together, that uh, you struggled with where to house it because that's certainly been one of the vexing uh, issues that we've struggled with here. And of course, haven't reached a conclusion on that yet. Um, you also, uh, I appreciate your remarks about important that we have a place at the table. I think not only have a place at the table, but I think it. Uh, because of our unique standing in the world, we need a um, we need a very significant voice in how to construct that. Uh, so uh, thank you, thank you so much uh, for your remarks. We're now going to turn to uh, Ambassador Coker. Before retiring in 2017, Ambassador Coker served 30 years in the U.S. diplomatic service, including as ambassador uh, to Burkina Faso and uh, Uganda, and as deputy chief of mission in Denmark and. He completed his government service as Assistant Secretary for Global Affairs at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he represented the United States at WHO meetings and as alternate board member of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Uh, with that, uh, Ambassador Coker, uh, time is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, distinguished senators. I'm Jimmy Coker and honored to be with you today. Very proud to have been a State Department Foreign Service Officer and at the Department of HHS for five years, as you said. And in those jobs, I helped develop and implement both the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief and the Global Health Security Agenda in the Obama Administration. These are two exceptional examples of global leadership, which all Americans should be proud of. Starting with the Global Health Security Agenda, uh, some people have dismissed its work because we did not prevent or adequately respond to the novel coronavirus outbreak. But five countries took actions because of GHSA with extraordinary results in combating the novel coronavirus. After mishandling the MERS outbreak in 2015, South Korea became one of the most active members of GHSA, reviewing its own procedures. And when COVID-19 hit, it was ready with surveillance and crisis management capacity developed through GHSA efforts. Uganda and Vietnam were the two pilot countries where the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention helped develop comprehensive prevention, detection, and response capacity. Both have been positive examples in their regions of controlling coronavirus and did so without ex extensive outside help. 
Likewise, the Republic of Georgia, through the involvement of CDC and of the Department of Defense through the Lugar Center, managed coronavirus better than any other country in the former Soviet Union. And within the European Union, Finland, the first chair of GHSA and its most enthusiastic initial backer, did an exceptional job of preventing and controlling COVID-19. So GS GHSA has some solid successes. And despite some justified criticism, so does the World Health Organization. Its emergency health emergencies program responded immediately to validate and distribute a good diagnostic test for COVID-19. The World Health Organization was the only organization that could get Chinese approval for independent scientists to enter China, and WHO, as they always would, included American government experts in their delegation. And the WHO also convened the first multi-stakeholder meeting to look at access to eventual vaccines, treatments, and countermeasures. You asked Mr. Chairman, who's the fire department? Who responds when there's an outbreak that threatens to become an epidemic? My reply to that question is that there is no alternative to WHO. Others will mobilize, such as the CDC through the GUARN, the Global Outbreak and Response Network, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, and GISA, the Laboratory Network. But WHO has to be at the core. And after Ebola with US leadership, I was involved personally and we helped made, make WHO more effective and we can do so again. The reforms that need to be made, I can enumerate some of them later if senators wish. But let me turn also to strengthening US government's leadership and capacity. I mentioned my experience with PEPFAR initially as ambassador to Uganda. PEPFAR worked. It worked because it had one, presidential engagement and leadership, two, bipartisan support, three, implementation organized country by country, four, significant new money, initially $15 billion over five years, and not least, number five, a State Department coordinator but I emphasize who was empowered because of that new money. I support the establishment of a senior global health security and diplomacy coordinator at state, but I support that if and only if there's significant new money. Simply redirecting USAID and CDC appropriations to state will result in gridlock. Additional new appropriations through state, on the other hand, can foster innovation and can incentivize both USAID and CDC to up their game as PEPFAR did. So how can experience make US global health leadership more effective? Here's some criteria I would use to evaluate any new proposal. One, as both proposals of Senator Rich and Senator Mendez do, it should restore White House whole of government expert leadership through a health security senior director at the National Security Council. It should be bipartisan. It should define responsibility and division of labor for implementation, not just at headquarters level. It should recognize the unique role that embassy teams play in allocating resources to build on the comparative advantages of USAID, of CDC, and of other parts of the Department of Health and Human Services. And most important, any new proposal must request, authorize, and appropriate at the, through the appropriate committees enough money for these agencies to do their work. The proposal of $3 billion over five years is not enough. It's less than the CSIS commission I was a member of 
recommended, and I'll put the cover there to give an advertisement, um, recommended for preparedness even before COVID hit. The HELP Committee and the HHS appropriators will have to come up with billions more. And Global Health Money and the HEROES Act, as Mark mentioned, will all, is likely also to be required to reach health security goals. Funding should also include more money for the World Health Organization, a U.S. contribution to the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, and an incentive fund for low-interest countries, low-income countries, I'm sorry, possibly through the already created Health Emergency Preparedness Fund at the World Bank. I thank you for your attention, and I welcome your questions. Well, Ambassador, thank you uh, very much. I, I think uh, I appreciate your focus on, uh, on the structure that that's, although uh, not the most exciting thing in the world, it's certainly something that's absolutely critical here. I think uh, without, without a structure, really, really are going to be lost. Um, the, uh, I, I really appreciate all the other uh, suggestions that you've made, and I would hope that you put those in writing and get them to us so that uh, as we're discussing this amongst ourselves, we can have this in front of us. So again, uh, thank you for your, uh, thank you for your experience uh, in that regard. Uh, next, we have uh, our Dr. Cha. Uh, he is a physician, researcher, and data enthusiast. Not exactly sure what a data enthusiast is. I've never met one before, but uh, I'm glad to hear we have one here. Uh, he is the KT Lee uh, Professor of Global Health at Harvard, uh, T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and the faculty director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. He's a practicing general internist and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He holds an MD from Harvard Medical School and an MPH from the Harvard TH School of Public Health. For that, Dr. Job, we welcome you. And uh, maybe you can start off by telling us what a data enthusiast is. So thank you for joining us. Um, Chairman Rich and uh, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, uh, it is indeed an honor to be here this morning. Uh, I, I don't think I've described myself as a data enthusiast, but I do believe that data and evidence should drive our decision making. So maybe that's uh, uh, maybe that's the idea. But let me uh, get to my testimony. Um, we are in the middle of the greatest global public health crisis in a century. Millions of people around the world have gotten sick and hundreds of thousands have died from this disease. Despite this, our best estimates are that less than 2% of the world's population has been infected with this virus. The global pandemic is just getting started. And the single biggest obligation that I believe we all have is to protect the lives and well-being of the American people and the people around the globe. And this is why I believe that the administration's decision to withdraw from WHO is so deeply unwise. You know, Chairman Rich, there's some irony in my testifying today in defense of WHO. You see, for years, I've been widely seen as a critic of WHO, and rightly so. I was one of WHO's harshest critics of his disastrous handling of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And coming out of that outbreak, I co-chaired an international panel that recommended major changes at WHO. So did WHO change? In some ways, yes, and in other ways, no. And WHO's response to COVID-19 has been better, but not perfect. After China informed WHO of a viral pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan, WHO acted quickly and alerted the world. 
And because both Ambassadors Diebel and Kolker have talked about what WHO has done well, let me focus for a minute on what WHO has done poorly. To me, the single biggest failure of WHO in this outbreak has been the excessive praise for the Chinese government and its handling of the outbreak. The Chinese government's response is not worthy of praise. They clearly hid the virus and silent, uh, silenced doctors and scientists for weeks, if not months. They delayed notifying the world. China is a major world power, and we should expect better. So I was disappointed to see WHO, WHO's lavish praise for China, disappointed but not surprised, because WHO is a membership organization, and as such, it has had a long tradition of showering praise on governments, even when those governments are behaving poorly. One of the criticisms of WHO has been that it didn't stand up to China. And I have to say, I find this puzzling. I've never understood what that could possibly mean. WHO has no authority to compel China to do anything, any more than it has authority to compel our government to act in a certain way. WHO is a membership organization. It can only be as effective as its members allow it to be. And let me be clear in my testimony, I believe WHO can be more effective. One of the areas where I think WHO can be more effective is that its mission is too broad. It literally works on every health-related issue in the world. And I believe WHO should only do those things that only WHO can do. So let's come back to how that might apply in this pandemic. Walking away from WHO at this moment is an extraordinarily bad idea. It will weaken WHO, which will harm the world and harm Americans. Because WHO does critical work that we all benefit from. WHO is running the Solidarity Trial, which has patients enrolled from 35 countries to find new treatments from COVID-19. WHO is coordinating the procurement and delivery of vaccines once they become available. And WHO is working closely with ministries of health in nearly every low and middle income country around the globe. It takes visiting any ministry of health to realize the integral role WHO plays. WHO is a trusted partner to ministries around the world. And if other countries struggle to control the outbreak, it will be bad not just for people of those nations, but for all of us. Because the one thing we have learned over and over again is that an outbreak anywhere can quickly become an outbreak everywhere. So during this pandemic, when we have many, many difficult months ahead of us, walking away from WHO, I believe, makes controlling the virus globally harder and makes it harder to manage the virus here at home. Walking away from WHO leaves us without a voice at the table to better manage the disease globally. And walking away from WHO means we will have little influence on how WHO is shaped and improved when this pandemic eventually comes to an end. I believe WHO can and should be more effective. But the bottom line is WHO is essential. As you've already heard this morning, there is no substitute. So for the sake of the health and the well-being of the world, and particularly for the health and well-being of the American people, I believe it's critical to use America's leadership to improve WHO's performance in this pandemic and for future ones. Thank you very much. Thank you for those uh, candid and I think uh, uh, very helpful remarks. Um, you, I think, quite uh, clearly and uh, correctly noted that the WHO has no authority uh, over other countries. And uh, as, uh, as I discuss this in a robust fashion with Dr. Pedro and, and with his management team, they stress that over and over again and, and wish they had that authority. 
I think uh, uh, the criticism uh, perhaps is more correctly uh, directed at the fact that they do have a bully pulpit. And as we all know, the bully pulpit can be as effective and indeed sometimes more effective than having actual authority over. And I think uh, from my own personal standpoint, I was disappointed in their use of that. But at the same time, understanding that the minute you step up on the bully pulpit, uh, you're gonna find yourself in an adversarial position with uh, uh, someone or some country that you're trying to get to cooperate with you and that might dissipate. So it's, a, um, it's a fine line. There, there's absolutely no question about that. And I think you remarked right on. And thank you so much. We now uh, have uh, Mr. Jeremy uh, Kanyendike, and he is a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. He previously served as the director of USAID's Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, during which time he led the U.S. humanitarian response to the 2014-2016 outbreak in West Africa, among other complex emergencies. He is a member of WHO's Independent Oversight and Advisory Committee and previously served on the independent advisory group that helped design WHO's post-Ebola reforms. Uh, Mr. Kajendijk, uh, the floor is yours. I'm told that, you, that they're having a little uh, uh, technical difficulty with your uh, with the uh, audio, so I hope this works. In any event, the floor is yes. yours. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Rich, and uh, thank you, Ranking Member Menendez, for the opportunity to testify. I apologize that you can't see me. Um, I had I had logged in, and then midway through Chairman Rich's uh, opening statement, my my internet completely went down, and it seems the provider is not working. But at least we have the phone as a backup. Would you like um, me to repeat the second half of my opening statement? <laughs> no, I heard it. I heard it perfectly clearly on my phone. Okay, thank you. Um, so, and and I greatly appreciated your remarks, Senator. Um, you. I, I thought you, you 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 set a wonderful tone. Um, I want to I want to thank the committee for the opportunity to testify today on this on this important topic. I think the COVID nineteen pandemic has made incredibly clear the importance of expanding U.S. government investments in global uh, pandemic preparedness, and also the linkage between that and our own domestic preparedness. Um, in you know in, within our own borders. Uh, investments like this in global outbreak cooperation are not just altruistic. They also serve to keep us safe here at home. And so I commend the, 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 the many thoughtful ideas that have been put forward by members of, of this committee, by some of your colleagues in the House. Um, and uh, I'm encouraged by some aspects of the plans that are reportedly being developed by the administration as well, because it is, it is clear that the U.S. now needs to take advantage of this moment to go really big on a global partnership for pandemic preparedness. And this means focusing on a number of things. It means investing more in surveillance diagnostics and early warning so that we can build the same kind of early warning capacity for infectious disease risks that we currently have for things like hurricanes, famines, or tsunamis. It means creating, using that risk awareness to create clearer triggers for global and country level action so that we never again have to see the kind of inconsistent patchwork of country responses that we've seen uh, in response to COVID-19. And I think one of the things that, that the current pandemic really shows clearly is that that kind of early action is just as important as, as uh, the baseline national capacity. The countries that acted early have done better, um, uh, whether or not they have uh, the full capacity we might, that, that they might want, and countries that have waited, even if they had 
good capacity on paper have, have really struggled. So both capacity and early action are incredibly important. It also means things like uh, investing in the readiness and resilience of medical and public health systems in weak and low-income countries. It means reinforcing supply chains and reserves of, of PPE and essential drugs. It means collaborating towards the development of innovative diagnostics, vaccines, and therapeutics on a global level. And I was encouraged to see uh, in Senator Risch's bill the uh, U.S. support for CEPI, which I think is incredibly important. And, of course, all of these things will require robust U.S. funding behind these priorities. And so I, I urge Congress to include pandemic response and preparedness funding um, in the in uh, the HEROES Act and continue supporting this on a more ongoing, uh, reliable basis over time, as we've done with things like PEPFAR. But that, of course, if we are to do all those things, it raises the natural question of how should we organize ourselves and how should we organize the global system to deliver on that? And so I want to lay out a few ideas on that based on my own experience with this over the years. Um, first, within the U.S. government, it's incredibly important to establish a clear interagency division of labor that is built on each agency's comparative advantages. And this is something that has been a struggle in PEPFAR. It's been, uh, it has produced a lot of turf battles over the years between USAID and CDC. It's something we didn't struggle with so much on Ebola because we laid out a clear division of labor right at the outset of the Ebola response. And then we budgeted and allocated funding based on that. So there was simply less to fight over between the agencies. Our roles were clear from the beginning. And so something like an international response framework uh, to parallel what we have domestically with the national response framework could help to clarify and enshrine some of those roles for institutions like the State Department, USAID, CDC, DOD, and others. And I was encouraged to see that Senator Menendez's bill contains some similar language. Uh, second, the State Department has an incredibly important role in building diplomatic support for pandemic readiness and can play a role also in coordinating broader overseas uh, U.S. engagement. But I do not believe a heavy PEPFAR-style centralized authority at the State Department over programs and budgets of, of interagency partners is the right template for this particular role. I believe a lighter approach modeled more on the counter-ISIL envoy would be, would be more effective. That approach um, was tasked similarly with building a global coalition uh, of allies towards, of course, in that case, fighting ISIL, in this case, fighting pandemics. Um, that is a sweet spot role for the State Department. Um, and the, the coordination function that the counter-ISIL envoy used was, uh, was shared with uh, a, senior, a senior director at the, at the NSC who could more effectively coordinate with the interagency. And I believe that that sort of model would be a better partnership here, uh, hinging, of course, on restoring the White House senior director and the accompanying team for global health security, which, which I think is, is crucially important, as some of the other witnesses have already noted. Third, uh, as several of these proposals do acknowledge, any new U.S. initiative must be robustly resourced. The pandemic has cost trillions of dollars in emergency economic stimulus and lost productivity and other spending. So investing in pandemic preparedness on a PEPFAR-like scale, which is to say billions of dollars a year, is an extremely good return on investment if it can prevent that kind of uh, economic damage in future pandemics. Fourth, it is uh, impossible to envision the U.S. succeeding in this kind of ambitious pandemic preparedness agenda without the full engagement of the World Health Organization. And frankly, it is hard to envision the rest of the world working together with us on this effort if they view it as a U.S. alternative or competitor rather than a complement and a supporter and partner to the World Health Organization. 
withdrawing the U.S. from the World Health Organization will be tragic, and it is entirely unjustified. Uh, in, in an earlier hearing, Senator Risch, you asked a group of administration witnesses to identify the fire department for global health emer emergencies. Uh, I agree with the other witnesses who have noted that such a thing already exists. It is called the Health Emergencies Program at the World Health Organization. It was established, uh, and I, I and um, uh, Ambassador Kolker both had a hand in helping to, helping to stand it up. Uh, it was established following the failures of the 2014 Ebola outbreak. It is not perfect. It is still a work in progress, but it is making great progress and has succeeded in recent years in addressing uh, several outbreaks of, of Ebola in the Congo, as well as other outbreaks like cholera in Yemen. There is no question that WHO continues to need further reform, and I would, I would uh, echo what Senator Rush said about the, uh, the challenges within the, the limitations that the international health regulations currently put on WHO. But we should then focus on those problems. We should not abandon the organization. And our best uh, chance to focus on those problems is by staying part of the organization despite its flaws and working to improve it. Finally, uh, it is a bit painful to say this, but the, I think we also have to acknowledge that the U.S.'s credibility to lead a global coalition on pandemic preparedness will really hinge on our ability to contain our domestic outbreak here at home. Our credibility globally starts with our competence within our own borders. And so to, to, to rectify this, we need to take the advice that we have given to other countries for many years, depoliticizing public health, following the evidence, communicating risk effectively, building public trust, and deploying competent management structures. And I think we have to show a degree of humility as well, recognizing that even a country as well-prepared and powerful and wealthy as the United States can falter when it departs from these sort of sound public health principles. Uh, with that, I look forward to your questions and thank you. Well, thank you very much. I, um, first of all, uh, uh, that, that's a good point, the last point made about us. And, uh, we're gonna be the leader in this. We take care of things at home. Um, I, I want to say I've sat through a lot of panels on the relations committee over the years. This is probably the best one that's been put together. I'd like to take full credit for it, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to concede that the staff, both the majority staff and the minority staff, uh, had a great hand in this and, and clearly picked uh, the, the best possible people. That we could have. I, I really appreciate the tone of the panel uh, as far as the strength of the board. And not uh, uh, being in a condemning mo uh, mood. Um, I, I think that uh, one thing that's come clear to all of us, and, I, and, and has been in by all of you, is the fact that this is going to take uh, more dollars. Uh, for those of us that are uh, uh, have a difficult time spending money, uh, other people's money, uh, this is a uh, this is a real challenge. Uh, uh, but obviously, there are things. Uh, you don't have any trouble with us most of the time when it comes to defense spending. But this is going to fall in the category of defense spending because uh, without it, the consequences are, are uh, phenomenal. All you have to do is look at what we just threw at the wall, the $2.8 trillion, half of a, uh, an annual budget to address this one single problem. And uh, that indicates that, uh, that we're going to have to be spending more to avoid having to do this again in the future. So uh, I, I think coming to that realization is difficult, it's painful, but uh, but it is a reality. Um, the emergency health program within the WHO uh, is probably one we're gonna have to take a really serious look at. Uh, 
I, I think if one thing that's uh, come clear here is, as I've tried to identify the fire department, there is no fire department, but if there is one, it's the emergency health program, but they act more like volunteer fire department than uh, for real deal when, uh, when you pick up the phone and want the fire department. So um, maybe uh, we could go around just very quickly you uh, give me your brief thoughts on the emergency health program, how we ought to look at it, uh, what it needs to be, and if you go please in the same order uh, uh, from where we started, then I'm going to turn it over to others for uh, questions. With that, uh, uh, we'll start with uh, Mark Dybel. Mark, are you there? I am. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, so within that, that um, response, there's something called the Strategic Health Operations Center, or SHOCK, which is similar to what an EOC, which I put forward in the testimony, uh, we need. <clears throat> However, it's not funded sufficiently, <clears throat> and it, it, there will be limitations for some of the reasons that have been discussed. The WHO does not have authority to compel countries to act, nor really would anyone else. There are limitations and involvement of the private sector. And so I think, you know, WHO absolutely needs to be involved, likely should host, and shock could be the, the central point of that. But we would need to supplement uh, the authorities. I think you need to involve heads of state, the private sector, civil society, including faith communities, so that we are ready to go. And then a key piece, and this worked in South Korea, Taiwan, and other countries, they have to do regular simulations. And the national security apparatus, the, the, the apparatus of the world, the private sector is exquisitely good at these simulations. You identify where your gaps are. So for example, that, that shock or whatever the EOC would be, would literally pick up the phone, call a country and say, you have an outbreak. And then the whole system would kick in and you'd see how it worked, whether it worked, you'd have stockpiles. And then you would start to see how to support regional and national EOCs so that they can be ready at the same time. So I totally agree that um, WHO has to be central to that and would be a driving force. But I think there's some supplemental things that would need to be done to make it totally effective with national security, private sector, civil society, and other groups. Um, and to have those simulations, which WHO can manage and should run. Uh, but And this would be, an, I think, a conversation we have to have globally to put together the right pieces. Thank you. Uh... Let's see, Ambassador Coker. Thank you very much. I, I agree with Mark, and there does need the WHO's budget for the entire operation with all of the mandates that they have is one third of the state of Maryland Department of Health budget every year. So that we need to up we need to go quantum levels more to let them be anything but a volunteer fire department. And in that regard, the dependence of the health emergencies program on the overall budget of the WHO, the small amount of assessed contributions for which the US is traditionally in arrears, not just now, but we're now more than ever in arrears, and the um, voluntary contributions makes it always dependent on an aspirational budget to do its work. It has to respond and then raise the money to pay for what it just did, borrowing from other WHO programs. So like I used to work for UNICEF, which has a tremendous ability to raise money from individuals, from foundations, from the private sector in a way that the, the WHO does not. The Red Cross also takes huge advantage of emergencies when 
people, Americans in particular, really want to respond and, and donate money. WHO has just set up a foundation that can scratch that surface, but I think we really need to look at the UNICEF and World Food Program models and look at a way that the World Health Organization can raise money widely from individuals and from organizations that now don't contribute because it's a member state organizations with assessed contributions, not a funded program like UNICEF and WFPR. In addition, I think we need to look at the um, international health regulations, which are the basis on which countries need to cooperate with the uh, health emergencies program. They, I think they need to be strengthened, maybe through a review conference or through a, a member state effort, uh, like we reviewed the uh, health outbreaks and emergencies program after the Ebola outbreak at WHO. But there should be a stronger right of international inspection. Uh, international Atomic Energy Agency can uh, require that countries let them inspect facilities if they think something's gone wrong. This will be harder in the health context, but I think it's something we need to look at. And we need more options for declaring levels of public health emergency. We need to be able to prepare a proportionate response, for instance, having to do with travel regulations, for instance, having to do with um, laboratory requirements, so that right now it's either uh, uh, an outbreak or it's a public health emergency of international concern, which triggers a number of different other um, requirements for states. We need to have a, a traffic light system in which there are more moderate levels of public health emergency that would galvanize states to take action earlier before this public health emergency of international concern take place. And I fully endorse what Mark said um, and others have, that WHO's inability to deal uh, effectively with the private sector, with civil society, and even with uh, finding a way in which other, many other multilateral organizations have to engage Taiwan, all of these are factors that can be addressed and need to be addressed by WHO in order to make the multilateral response more effective. Thank you very much. I appreciate those remarks, and I'm particularly interested in your comparison to uh, on inspections to the nuclear inspections. I would respectfully disagree that these may be more difficult than the nuclear inspections. Indeed, <laughs> we've had a lot of that. I'm serious. We've had a lot of experience with that, particularly as Iran is and North Korea are probably the poster children for that. But um, what we have found is an international agency uh, can use the bully pulpit really to uh, shame countries into uh, uh, doing what needs to be done. And so I, I, I'm not so sure that it, it's, it's more of a challenge, but uh, that's an interesting idea and, and a novel idea that uh, I haven't heard. But it, that, that's one of the biggest complaints WHO has about their lack of authority uh, is that they can't go in on these things. That, that's really worth taking a look at. Uh, excellent. Uh, uh, let's see, Dr. Uh, Cha. Yeah, so Chairman Rich, I, I'm going to uh, just be very brief and echo a few of the points that Ambassadors uh, Dybul and Kolker have made, because I agree uh, largely with, with their points. And let me emphasize maybe three. Um, so first of all, I do think the health emergencies program is clearly underfunded. One of the reasons why it feels like a volunteer uh, fire department, because in some ways it is a little bit of a ragtag. They don't have, they're always out there asking for money. And, and if we're gonna use them as one of the key pillars of our global response, they need sustained and, and adequate financing. So I think uh, whatever mechanism we use, that I think has to actually be uh, essential. Um, second, 
is uh, on the public health emergency declaration. One of the calls that we had from our report in 2014 um, was that you do need a graded system because it can't be an all or none. Because what that does is it raises the threshold for calling out a problem until it becomes much worse than we than it uh, it needs to be. And so uh, we called for essentially a version of what the Department of Homeland Security does, you know, kind of green, yellow, orange, red. And uh, and I think that would be very, very helpful. Um, we'll probably require some uh, looking at, at IHR and, and what can be done there. Last is one of my broader frustrations with WHO, which does come up here again and has been mentioned both by Ambassador Steibel and, and Kolker, but let me emphasize, because I think this is extraordinarily important, is the difficulty WHO has engaging with non-government actors, uh, non-state actors. It has a framework that it uses, but largely uh, WHO really struggles. And one of the things that we've learned is that a global response to a pandemic is not just about government action. It is about private sector. It is about civil society organizations. And so that's a broader and I think deeper discussion with WHO, not just about the health emergencies program, but I would like to see a WHO that's more deeply engaged, that's more favorable, uh, that is more welcoming of non-state actors, uh, because I think that is something that hinders WHO's uh, effectiveness. Excuse me. Great, great thoughts. Uh, lastly, Mr. Kanyendike, you're up. Thank you, and hopefully you can all see me again. My internet has returned. Um, so I I, uh, I agree with I agree with everything that my my other uh, colleagues here have said. Um, I think that Senator Rich, you're framing that it is a fire department, but it's the volunteer fire department is is a really nice shorthand for the the challenges that the, the World Health Organization's emergency program continues to face. They have made great strides. They are now at a point where I think the proof of concept has been demonstrated, and now we need to really invest in strengthening and institutionalizing. Um, their emergency capacity, and that means more consistent funding. Uh, I have watched them from my perch on their independent oversight committee for the last few years. Um, I have watched them struggle constantly with trade-offs um, of trying to cover all the things that they have to cover within their mandate, despite not receiving uh, enough resources to do so. And you know, they are they are trying to contend with everything the world throws at them uh, with a budget smaller than most U.S. hospital systems. Um, Tied to that, they they need uh, greater staffing, but they also, as other witnesses have said, they need to invest more in partnerships. And uh, and so, you know, WHO shouldn't have to do everything alone. And uh, they have made progress, I think, overcoming some of the, the the cultural challenges within WHO around partnership with non-governmental actors. I think that's an area that needs to that needs to continue. And then finally, it, it is very very important. To take a look, as Ambassador Kolker said, at the international health regulations and some of the authorities that uh, WHO has to operate under that really do tie their hands in, in, in uh, their ability to be more forward-leaning and more assertive. And in particular, looking fresh at the public health emergency of international concern mechanism, which right now is a binary mechanism, it either is or it isn't, we need to build in more gradations because there is a huge difference between something like the COVID-19 pandemic and the Ebola outbreak that was has just finished in Eastern Congo, but within the existing construct of the the emergency declaration mechanism, that can't be acknowledged. So a more gradated uh, mechanism that looks perhaps more like what we do with um, within the, the humanitarian sector with famine declarations and famine prediction, uh, I think could be very helpful in triggering early action and uh, differentiating between different levels of risk.
Thank you very much uh, for those remarks. And uh, just let me close, and I'm going to turn over to Senator Menendez. Um, again, I want to stress that uh, for every member of this committee, uh, uh, Foreign Relations Committee, and their staffs, we're going to be meeting as we have been regularly and talking about ways of moving forward and getting things into the bill that people can uh, embrace. Uh, so everyone, there's no closed secret meetings. Uh, Everyone's invited to these. Senator Murphy and I are going to meet with our staffs brief, briefly at uh, noon today to talk about next steps forward. So I want to invite everyone uh, to participate and uh, so we can try to pull this wagon together. With that, uh, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you all for some very thoughtful testimony. Uh, Dr. Dybul, in your written statement, uh, you mentioned that, uh, quote, global and American partners are looking for a sign that the United States will once again demonstrate its commitment to a comprehensive global response. Investing in the immediate response now and laying the foundation for the future will require leadership and resources. So do you or any of the witnesses testifying today believe that the administration's response has been commensurate with the scope and nature of the COVID-19 pandemic domestically or abroad? Thank you, uh, Senator Menendez. Um, I, I think the only honest answer to that is no, we're not quite there yet. Um, I would say we have some of the best people, and I, I think we all know all of them, um, in the administration and in our civil service, uh, capable of, of mounting a strong engagement internationally, um, as you saw from the government panel a few weeks ago. Um, uh, but we do have room to make up in terms of being engaged, our leadership, joining CEPI, which both of your bills call for, and participating there, engaging with WHO, supporting WHO's reform, uh, and engaging with international partners, which, as I pointed out, I think is necessary to establish that fire hydrant. Uh, I know you've put the World Bank trust fund in, and maybe that's the best mechanism, but until we talk to the rest of the world and know where they would put money, it's difficult to know that. So uh, I do think we have the right people. We've got a great uh, team that can, can do the work but we have some ground to make up. And I really thank the Congress and this committee for the leadership in, in stressing it because people do look to Congress, not just the administration. And when they see leadership coming from, and I know this from PEPFAR and the Global Fund, um, leadership from Congress actually makes a big difference in the world too. And I think we are positioned well to be able to engage and to see this through. And I would just point out again, that swine flu uh, report today is very disturbing. I mean, if we have at the same time new waves of the coronavirus, the potential for a bad flu season or swine flu. It is a it is a catastrophic future we could face. And I really thank all of you and, and the people in the administration doing the work, but we have some work to do. So let me ask you all, what lessons should we learn from watching other countries who have successfully responded to the COVID-19 pandemic? I open that up to anyone who wants to give uh, any insights. Well, Senator Menendez, maybe I can, uh, this is Shish Jha, maybe I can begin. Mm -hmm. um, the, there are lots of lessons, but the single most important one is countries that have taken the virus seriously and have moved aggressively uh, have done better. Uh, this is a virus that is unforgiving if you fall behind. And unfortunately, for much of the, of the um, time that we've been battling this virus, I think we've been behind and we've been playing catch up. Uh, but certainly South Korea, um, New Zealand, uh, Germany, 
Um, there's there's a uh, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore. There, there's a list of countries. They haven't all done the exact same thing. Uh, they've some of them have pushed more on testing and tracing. Others did a more aggressive lockdown, but they all took it much more seriously than we have. And that has been the single biggest difference, in my opinion, between countries that have done well and countries like ours that have really struggled. I see. Senator, this is uh, Jeremy Kennedy. Uh, quick thoughts on those two questions. Uh, first, I would agree with Dr. Jha. The countries that have done the best are the countries that have acted the earliest and have been the most robust in using public health engagement, that they have used upstream public health capacity, testing, tracing, um, and strong public health systems to prevent overwhelming their hospitals. Uh, we have a weak public health system in the United States compared to most other developed countries, and that is an area that needs more focus. But we also just have to act early and be guided by evidence. And I think it's clear we waited too long, and that has really hurt us. Um, on the international scene, you know, you asked if it has been commensurate to the scope of the pandemic. I don't think our engagement has. We have been uncharacteristically absent uh, from international leadership on this pandemic. And I, I look at the contrast with the Ebola outbreak a few years ago, or past outbreaks under the Bush administration, where you know the U.S. was really showing leadership, engaging with the world trying to convene and bring the world along with us around a common vision. We don't see anything like that here. Instead, uh, we see the administration attacking WHO, moving very slowly to disperse the aid funds that Congress has, has uh, appropriated to it, and going it alone on things like vaccine development where the rest of the world is collaborating. So I think we really do need to step up into the customary leadership role that we have shown in past outbreaks. Well, thank you. I'm moving into what, what this should look like then. Uh, recent articles in DevEx and, and Political reported that the uh, Trump administration is proposing an initiative uh, as called the President's Response to Outbreaks, which would consolidate international pandemic preparedness under a new State Department coordinator and establish a new central fund to fight pandemics using money out of the COVID supplemental. And uh, let me go back to you, Mr. Kanandike. You state clearly in your testimony that you do not believe that modeling a new initiative on PEPFAR as proposed by the administration, or as the chairman's bill envisions is a good approach. Would taking budgetary authority and programs from USAID and moving them to the State Department at all improve the ability of USAID or the US in general to respond to epidemics and pandemics? What impact would further stovepiping pandemic response funding for prevention and response efforts have on global health programs and the relief to development continuum? Thanks for that question, Senator. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that it creating a PEPFAR-style, highly empowered, centralized coordinator at the State Department is the right model for what we need to do here. Uh, I think that the something like the counter-ISIL coordinator is more the sort of function that we need here, and that was a lighter touch structure. It had some coordination authority, but it led that in close conjunction with the White House, and it left the, the, the budgetary and program decision-making and line management to the agencies themselves. And I think that that's a much better way to go, as long as right, at the, right from the outset, we clearly define who is, on the, who is on the hook to do what across the interagency. And that was one of the challenges within PEPFAR, and one of the reasons the PEPFAR coordinator has had to be so, uh, so empowered, is because that was a, kind of a free-for-all in the early years of PEPFAR between USAID and CDC, and it set, the, it set the, 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 the foundation for a long, many years of turf battles between those two agencies and forced the PEPFAR coordinator role to be more of a, a kind of referee for some of those interagency fights. But if we design it well up front, 
Uh, I don't think we need quite that heavy structure. And, and that will be, you know, I, I, in the Ebola outbreak, when we did that, it worked very well and we got along because we didn't have that much to fight over. If we leave them a lot to fight over by not, not um, outlining rules clearly, that's when you need that kind of heavy-handed coordination function. And then finally, uh, Dr. Ja, uh, 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 on May 18th, President Trump called for WHO reform within 30 days. 11 days later, he announced that the United States would withdraw from the WHO. Uh, former Deputy Secretary of State Bill Burns, one of America's preeminent diplomats who served for 33 years, commented that, quote, you don't reform the fire brigade when the fire is raging out of control. So as someone who has both been a severe critic of the WHO, but today's testimony balances with some of the realities, um, what's your assessment of uh, the Trump administration's efforts to reform the WHO? Have they been effective? And what lessons can we learn now from the United States efforts to work with and reform the WHO during uh, and following the 2014 Ebola outbreak? So, Senator Menendez, thank you for that question. To stick with uh, Chairman Rich's uh, analogy of a, of a fire brigade, uh, a fire department, a fire department that, let's say, is struggling to manage a, uh, a blaze that is engulfing our neighborhood, um, it's important to look at how that fire brigade is doing and, and assess its performance. Uh, but to distract it in the middle of fighting the fire is probably not ideal. And so I believe that we have to do a very thorough and careful examination of what did WHO do well, what did it do badly, and how we make it better. Um, interim assessments, as have been proposed, uh, may be reasonable as long as they are not hugely distracting. I believe at this moment, all of us have one job and one job only, which is to try to manage this pandemic and try to bring it to a close as quickly as possible. Anything that helps is a good thing to do, and anything that distracts is a bad thing to do. Um, I believe at the end of this pandemic, which I hope will be within a year with a uh, with vaccines that are widely available, or at least, let's say, controlling the pandemic by then, uh, I think there will be plenty of opportunity to do a very deep dive on what WHO did well, badly, what reforms are needed. Again, after Ebola, it, it took both independent commissions and U.S. leadership to make those changes. And I suspect that we will need both of those, both independent assessments, as well as U.S. leadership to make the necessary reforms uh, to make WHO a more effective organization yet. All right. Thank you. I have a lot of questions I'm going to submit for the record. I would love to have your expertise on it, all of you. And with that, Mr. Chairman, turn it back to you. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, I, uh, I think we all have questions we'll be submitting for the record, and I think those will be helpful as we try to move forward. Uh, unfortunately, technology doesn't uh, help me know who's on the line here, so I'm just going to go. I'm going to do this in on seniority, and uh, if uh, I'm going to move as quickly as I can through these till we, so we can get through these. Senator Rubio, are, are you on? Senator Johnson. Senator Gardner. Senator Romney. Senator Graham. Senator Barrasso. Senator Portman. 
Senator Paul. Senator Young. Senator Cruz. Senator Purdue. Senator Cardin. I'm here, Mr. Chairman. Oh, thank you. Senator Cardin, thank, thank you for Democrat. being on, number one. Number two, thank you for uh, your work on this. Your, your work has been very helpful, very in, uh, instrumental in moving the, uh, the entire issue forward. Both yours and Senator Portman's work in that regard is, is greatly appreciated. And again, uh, on a bipartisan fashion, I hope we can all move forward to get a bill, whatever that bill may look like, that uh, that will move the ball downfield. So thank you, Senator Cardin, it's yours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I agree with your assessment. I think this panel has been an excellent panel, and I, I thank each of them for their contribution. Uh, a couple of observations, and I'm going to ask a specific question on what we should be doing in the United States Congress. Observations, as you've all said, that if you're in a country, you're not going to be safe unless you're, all countries are safe to be in, because it will spread. Uh, that U.S. leadership is indispensable and that the United States pulling out of the WHO uh, during the middle of this pandemic made no sense whatsoever, recognizing that the WHO definitely needed to be reformed. We also recognize that the United States must lead by example. And when we live in a country where we have the continuation of the first wave and the escalating number of cases, we are not the example that the world's going to look to as the best way to handle this pandemic. All of that are facts we have to deal with. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee has a strong record of the independence of the Congress in leading our nation. And yes, you've all mentioned the fact that we need to provide greater resources. And I couldn't agree with you more. We do need to provide the resources and Congress has the responsibility to provide the resources. But we can do more than just provide resources. And that's my question to you, is what should the United States Congress do? By example, during the previous administration, we disagreed with the policies in regards to Iran. We passed a bill to be much stronger against the uh, regime of Iran. In this administration, we disagreed with the administration's policy in regards to Russia. We passed a strong bill to stand up to Russia aggression. We acted independently. Now, we may have some different views, but I believe that the president has been uh, very inconsistent, uh, that's being kind, but has not given the leadership we need for the global community in order to effectively deal with this pandemic. What should Congress do? What concrete steps should we take in order to exercise U.S. global leadership to protect the health of not only, not just the global community, but clearly the health of, of, of Americans? What action would you like to see come out of Congress? Senator, this is Jimmy Colker. I'd like to take a first stab at that. Is that, uh, sure. Chairman, sure. Is that okay? Sure. First of all, um, many people said, oh, the U.S. was the best prepared country in the world. And I show up another book, um, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, Johns Hopkins and the Economist published a study in which we did get the highest score, 83 out of 100, which is not an A grade. But um, if you look at the, if you look at the areas in which we failed, we got a grade of 60 or less in three of the 34 indicators in that study, Global Health Security Index. One was in the preparedness of our clinics and hospitals
or a pandemic outbreak in terms of supplies, training, personnel, all those things, we got a score of 60. We got a score of 23 out of 100, a phenomenally bad grade in um, terms of health access. How, how easy is it for the most vulnerable populations to get access to healthcare in the United States? A low score. And we got an even lower score in exercising our team. And we've seen that all three of these, that we did not have a team in place that was used to working with each other on outbreaks and emergencies. We did not have access for the most vulnerable populations. And our hospitals have been struggling to meet the demands that have been placed on them. So domestically, Congress needs to look at this holistically. But I also want to make one other point about China. It's, a, the, it's absolutely true China was not wholly transparent or cooperative in the way they looked at this. But historically, the United States is not reliant and has not been reliant on Chinese government official statements or even on World Health Organization information about China. After the SARS outbreak in 2003, China systematically set up a CDC model on our own CDC. We had CDC people co-located in China. And in 2016, there were 47 of them on the campus of the Chinese CDC in daily contact with their counterparts about outbreaks and epidemics, training, sharing information. Um, in 2013, with H7N9 bird flu outbreak, which many people thought was going to be an epidemic, we surged 40 CDC people to China to help the Chinese epidemiologists control that epidemic, and they did. But two things happened. One is the post-Benghazi move of all U.S. government personnel onto embassy compounds, which at HHS or during the Obama administration, I actually fought saying this was not in the interest of our public health preparedness. And indeed, in China, we have moved all of CDC off of the Chinese CDC campus into the embassy compound. Then the Trump administration talked about reducing our footprint of health presence in China. And those 47 people have reduced, been reduced to 14, of whom only three are Americans. So when we had this outbreak, we had, there, we had none of the three protocols. We didn't use any of the three protocols that we could have used to engage China in direct bilateral collaboration. And the last one of those three, I have to say, which is an emerging infectious disease protocol, expires today. June 2020 is the expiration date. But emerging infectious disease protocol, we have not convened that, a meeting of that under that protocol since 2017. So we have a protocol which would have um, it facilitated the sharing of information directly to us. We haven't used those authorities. I, I have limited time. Let me just see if any of the others sure. want to respond. Just very Senator Cardin, if I could, as, as a constituent, I live in Kent County. Um, I would say your direct question on what can Congress do is, a, is, is very pointed, and I would say what you're doing. Um, one is to link domestic and global much more clearly, which would mean working um, across committees. Um, and that, that's one thing I would emphasize, because it, this crosses CDC in our domestic response, it crosses the international activity, both at the State Department and in defense, it becomes complicated, and it's very important to work across those committees as I know you've begun to do. The second thing is to do precisely what you're doing with the legislation that's been proposed, put forward how the US government can lead in both a bilateral and a multilateral way, and open that up for discussion and then ultimately pass the legislation and work with the appropriators to ensure it gets funded. 
But I do believe this committee is actually taking the steps that are necessary. And again, there are people in the administration who can work with, with, with what you can do. But if, if it's clear that Congress is acting, I can tell you that matters both here, but abroad, because people understand our system of government and clear action from Congress on financing, structure, activity, what you want to see done makes a big difference in terms of how the rest of the world views the U.S. response. So I thank this committee for initiating that process. The key is to drive it forward, get it done, and then it can make a big difference. Considering you just complimented the committee, I'm sure the chairman didn't mind. I ran over a little bit of time. Thank you. Mr. If, that, if that hadn't been so complimentary, I'd be very angry about you. <laughs> Uh, but, but thank you for those remarks, and I and I want to underscore again: this is a this is a full committee uh, uh, response. To this. Uh, with that, uh, Senator Shaheen, are you on? I know she was with us earlier. Uh, Senator Coons. Well, uh, Senator Coons isn't here, but I can see Senator Udall sitting in front of a beautiful New Mexico state flag, and the mountains behind him reminds me of home. Senator Udall. Menendez, you, you can hear me, I take it, right? I can. Um, great. Ambassador Coker, uh, first, I'd like to thank you for your previous work as HHS's chief health diplomat. The COVID-19 pandemic demonstrates how crucial it is for us to engage early on with our international allies and neighbors to address emerging public health issues. Only with open communication and focused coordination can we effectively take on this virus. The U.S.-Mexico border Health Commission has a tradition of working bilaterally to tackle shared public health challenges. That is why I introduced bipartisan legislation with Senator Cornyn and others, the Border Health Security Act to better coordinate our public health response along the northern and southern borders by increasing emergency preparedness, developing stronger health surveillance and strengthening our public health infrastructure by providing additional resources, as the chairman has talked about. Our bill uses the recommendations of the commission to help effectively guide resources along with input from the administration. Ambassador Coker, in your opinion, will providing additional resources to build public health infrastructure and better coordinate early warning infectious disease surveillance at our borders, which my bill does, improve our ability to combat COVID-19 and future pandemics? Senator, thanks for your question, and of course the answer is yes. Um, I did represent the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who's co-chair with the Mexican Ministry of Health, as, to lead these sessions of the U.S.-Mexico Border Health Commission when I worked at HHS. And it's a little-known operation, but it, we, when we think about border security, it's really important also to think about border cooperation. And this is a great example of where the four U.S. border states and the five Mexican border states meet regularly to exchange information about health threats with the direct involvement of the populations that live across the border and the state departments of health. And in that capacity, we were able in the past to give small grants, a total of only about $2 million a year, to state health departments to enable them to 
leverage state support and to support state and local efforts to do things like surveillance, TB control, which is especially difficult across the border, and looking for infections and outbreaks. And this, unfortunately, with the reduction in budget for the secretary's office at HHS, these grants to the states have ended. So your efforts to earmark some money to do something that I really saw good results from, especially in this time when health security is national security, I really appreciate. Great. Well, I I hope uh, I can persuade Chairman Risch and Senator Menendez to uh, put this border health security package into the next COVID relief package that we're going to be working on, because I think it would make a real difference, as you have uh, said, uh, on all of the issues that impact us on the northern border and the southern border. Um, Dr. Zha, in your opening remarks, you said that the Latin American region recently reached 2.2 million cases after infections doubled over the last two months, and its combined death toll passed 100,000 last week. Yet the Trump administration has repeatedly cut funding to the Latin American region. Furthermore, instead of helping our neighbors in Cuba, the administration has cut off communication and family support networks. These cuts simply were not prudent in light of the current pandemic. What impacts will these cuts have on our effectiveness in dealing with the pandemic here at home and across Latin America? So, Senator, thank you for your question and your and your um, comment. You know, the Latin America is our neighbors. These are our neighbors in Mexico and Cuba and, and certainly across the entire Americas. And when I look across the entire globe, Senator, um, I see what's happening in Mexico and Peru and Brazil and Chile, but other countries as well, as incredibly concerning. Uh, these have really become, along with the United States, the hotspots of the world. And so if, if you think of this as a fire raging across an entire city, and these are our neighbors, and um, we've got to work with our neighbors to put the fire out, because if there is a fire, a raging fire in our neighbor's home, there is nothing we can do to protect our home that will not require us also working with our neighbors. So I believe deeply in American engagement globally, but I believe particularly in our engagement uh, locally in our own neighborhood. It's a good thing to do. It's, it's in tradition with what America has always done, and it helps protect the American people. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Risch, very much for this hearing. Thank you, Senator Udall. Appreciate that. Senator Murphy, are you with us? Yes, I sure, yes, I sure am. You oh, say well. Berkeley. Or is yours? Uh, Mr. Chairman, did, were you calling on uh, Chris Murphy or, or, or Senator Merkley? I'm sorry, Chris, uh, Chris Murphy. That is not me. Who's All speaking? This is Senator Merkley speaking. I'm sorry. Uh, Senator Murphy, are you with us? Senator Kane. Senator Markey. Looks like you're going to get your chance after all, Senator Merkley. You're up. Okay, very good, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much. I wanted to uh, start by uh, asking for some thoughts on some of the secondary impacts that we're, we're facing. And perhaps, uh, Mr. Conondike, I'll address this to you at the Center for Global Development. Uh, one of the secondary impacts is a potential massive increase in uh, food insecurity, an estimated doubling 
of uh, severe food insecurity, uh, an estimated 150 million more people driven into extreme poverty. Is this an area where America could really show some international leadership uh, and take that on? Uh, thank you, Senator, for that question. I think you raised a really important point, which is that the you know, the full impact of a pandemic like this is not simply the infections that it causes. It's also the second order impact the things like uh, the economic damage, the food security damage. And uh, you know, we are seeing increasing reports of, of food security impacts, particularly you know, in countries that have resorted to lockdown tactics without having the ability to cushion the economic impact of that the way that uh, a wealthy country like the U.S. or, or uh, the European countries has been able to. So I am particularly concerned about what that will mean for uh, much of the developing world as they try to contain this virus. Um, and we need to then we need to support them not just with uh, not just with fighting the pandemic, but we also need to provide more comprehensive support. And you know, one of the areas where I'm I, I've been concerned, and I wrote a, I wrote a piece about this uh, last week, is that not much aid funding, whether from the U.S. or from other donors, is reaching NGOs and frontline local organizations in developing countries, and they have a very important role in cushioning those impacts. So. You know, I would I would urge the, the the U.S. and other global donors to focus on getting money really as as expeditiously as possible to those frontline local partners who play such an important role, um, while also supporting organizations like the World Food Program, which have a, a an enormous uh, enormously important responsibility on the kind of macro side of the food impact. Uh, thank you. I want to turn to another aspect, and and Dr. Jaw, perhaps I'll direct this your your way, which is. Um, there is reports that uh, international refugee camps are starting to show the signs of uh, outbreaks that could move very uh, quickly. I've been in some of those refugee camps around the world where people are densely populated, uh, most recently in Cox's Bazaar. Uh, and is that an area where, where the United States could really help focus world attention and resources on the, on the refugee camps? Yeah, so Senator Merkley, thank you uh, for that question. And absolutely, you know, refugee camps, uh, we have more people displaced in the world right now than we've ever had since World War II, about 70 million uh, around the world. And refugee camps are breeding grounds uh, for uh, a large outbreaks of this virus because it is obviously very difficult to socially distance. Uh, they don't have strong health infrastructure and uh, and you have a very mobile population, often people with, with a lot of... Uh, chronic illness. So I think this is an area of extreme concern to me as a, as a public health person and an area that I think has gotten very little attention globally. And so uh, U.S. leadership in this area, I think, would be very helpful. Uh, we're not talking about a small group of individuals, 70 million people around the world who are internally or externally displaced. And we really do need a concerted effort to uh, make sure that we manage disease outbreaks in those communities. Uh, uh, thank you. I think about how in Oregon we're looking at the high-risk areas, uh, uh, farm workers, camps, old folks, centers, prisons, and so forth, and how our committee, our foreign relations committee, could be looking at those high-risk areas around the around the globe. Uh, let me turn to another piece of the the, the puzzle, and uh, uh, perhaps uh, Mr. Dybal, I'll ask you to respond to this, and that is vaccine strategy. There's a some hundred groups pursuing a, a, a vaccine. Uh, there's been a conversation about if the United States organization develops a vaccine that's approved, 
whether we should insist on essentially all the, all the vaccine being available in the United States first before it can be exported, or whether it should be available to be developed or reproduced in, I guess, in factories or drug factories around the world to quickly spread it. Um, and so in terms of vaccine strategy, what's the, assuming we get a, an effective approved vaccine, what's the best way to, to uh, pursue the production and distribution of that vaccine? That's an excellent question, Senator Merkley. And um, I don't think any of us would agree that we should just give it to the US first before we give it to anyone else, because that doesn't make us safe. Uh, if other countries have widespread virus, we're and we don't, we're stuck here. We, you need vaccination across the world. What is happening actually here is very exciting. In the research world, the international collaboration is very strong across the private sector. We have three candidates that are moving, and there's a significant investment both by the United States government through NIH, uh, BARDA, and other mechanisms, and also through the Gates Foundation, through CEPI, which unfortunately the U.S. didn't participate in, to actually basically put bets on seven vaccines. And we don't know if they're going to work, but begin creating the production facilities now. The hope is that we would have more than one approach. For example, there's there are about three major approaches that are being taken to vaccine development. You can't just switch one factory from one type to the other. And so people are investing billions of dollars, including the Gates Foundation. And Bill said, I'm going to lose a couple billion dollars because he's going to actually create the production capacity now um, for those vaccines should they become available so we can mass produce. So there is great work being done there. And I think support from the U.S. government, including financially, in addition to NIH, um, which is hugely important, but to CEPI um, and others, which both bills call for, would be important. And secondly, to understand that just waiting till we get to every last person in the United States is not the best way to protect us from the virus. We actually need the world to have the vaccinations so that we can have the open global economy that we need if our economies are going to grow. And the last thing I would say to that, which is something I should have said to Senator Cardin, it's important that the WHO be at the table. And so something Congress can do is make sure we don't withdraw from WHO. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Merkley. Yeah, we've got uh, less than 15 minutes left, but we've had a couple of members join us uh, who want to participate. Uh, We'll do that, starting with uh, Senator Shaheen. Senator Shaheen, you're up. But I had to leave for a few minutes, and I very much appreciate the, the thoughtful discussion and all of our panelists' testimony this morning. Um, Dr. Ja, I want to begin with you because one of the things you talked about was that you have been critical of the World Health Organization for the way they praised China's response to the coronavirus. Given what's been said about the, the lack of um, carrots and sticks that the WHO actually has, what do you think they should have done in response to the way China behaved? Yeah, Senator Shaheen, this is a, this is a very difficult question because uh, WHO, you know, people have often said, well, we, WHO should have chastised China. And I think, well, I'm sure that would have worked out well in terms of WHO's ability to get in and do things. So I, I think the, the balancing act, uh, as Chairman Rich brought up, 
um, would have been one to acknowledge the information, demand that China let WHO investigators in, uh, but they didn't have to go as far as to praise China as the model. Uh, I remember listening to those early uh, WHO press conferences and, and being struck by what I thought was an excessive level of praise. I suspect it was done with the motivation of getting the Chinese government to then be more open to WHO's engagement. And so I think the motivation was probably good, um, but it also, I think, uh, led a lot of people to be um, less suspicious of the data coming out of China than probably should have been. So I think it had costs and it's always easy to armchair quarterback, but I do think uh, they went too far and I wish they had not. And could the international community, could the United States have done more at the time to criticize and demand that China provide accurate data? Yeah, you know, I always believe um, that uh, direct engagement by by global leaders uh, on, in issues like this and moments like this is really important. Um, harsh criticism may not work so well with the Chinese government, just as it wouldn't work with our government. If, sure. if another government or WHO criticized us harshly, I'm not sure we'd be amenable to working closely. But I think direct engagement and more, uh, more of a demand for accountability and sharing of information coming from the United States, coming from other European leaders, uh, would have been helpful. Uh, the Chinese government, I think, uh, responds to pressure when it's done respectfully, as as I think most uh, organizations and governments do. And I think that could have been done more effectively than it was. Um, thank you. One of the questions that I asked at the last hearing that we had about the current pandemic was what um, opening the United States withdrawal from the global stage has provided to China to extend their influence in other parts of the world as they respond as the country that is there to provide um, materials, to provide medicine, to provide um, guidance based on their experience. Can any of you comment on the opening that you see that that has given China and what the United States has sacrificed in our not being the leader on the global stage right now? Well, Senator Shaheen, this is Mark Geibel. And having um, uh, run an international organization, I can tell you it's, it's significant. And it's not just China, it's actually Russia too. They've both been, over the last three or four years, been increasing their footprint in global health significantly, and particularly in Africa. Um, and this is a real risk, I think, to the United States. Um, there should be a balance. We need China involved. They've got lots of resources and they've got a lot to offer, but we can't just open it up the door to them. And wherever we have stepped back, they have stepped in, uh, not just in the WHO, but in other areas. And so uh, we, we are at great risk around the world uh, if we don't stay actively engaged and at the table. And, and I, I would just emphasize, it's not just China. Russia has also been increasing their footprint in the multilateral and in specific countries in terms of health because they know countries value health. And the U.S. has been the preeminent leader unquestioned in global health. And we need to maintain that role for many reasons, including who are going to be our trading partners in the future. And we need we want to have those relationships uh, maintained not only for health, but for many reasons that are important to our security and our economic strength. This is Jimmy Colker. If I can just reinforce what Mark said, I, you know, I was in the Foreign Service for 30 years and the U.S. is the aspirational nation. People in many, many countries, especially in Africa, where I served for 14 years, um, look to the U.S. 
How, how do you solve that problem in the U.S.? How can we get U.S. partners, U.S. expertise, U.S. energy involved in our projects? And that's especially true with health. And it seems to me that if we see this as mercantilist, if it's zero sum, we miss opportunities that we took advantage of, of working with China, for instance, on the Ebola response in Liberia, where there's a Chinese facility and ours work together with the African CDC, which was set up after Ebola and has responded well. So there are opportunities bilaterally with China, but particularly in the WHO and the rest of the world. People look to us for expertise, guidance. We're the best prepared delegation. We have the resources they want. If we're not there, they're going to find somebody else in China certainly is eager to play that role. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Kanandak. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I would. I agree with everything the other witnesses have said. I would just say as well, I think that the U.S. posture globally has been a real coup for China on this because you know what the world has seen over the past few months is China, because they controlled their outbreak uh, fairly, you know, relatively quickly, has been able to go around the world distributing PPE and other other supplies to developing countries. While for most of that period, the U.S., rather than providing aid as we customarily would, has actually been competing with a lot of these same countries for scarce supplies of testing materials and PPE. And it's only recently that, that that's begun to reverse. Um, you know, so what the world has seen is, is they're competing with the US that they're usually accustomed to partnering with, and instead they're getting help from China. And China's been very happy to step into that gap, and they've made a lot of hay in terms of their public diplomacy about really playing that up. Um, I think the, you know, that's, that's something we need to be very wary of, and, and the sooner we get our outbreak domestically under control, the sooner we can re return to that customary role of supporting the rest of the world. Well, thank you all very much. It seems to me that as we talk about the importance of health around the world, it's um, something that some of us in Congress seem to have missed because it's also a huge issue here at home, and we need to make sure that we're also looking towards the health of uh, the American people as well as globally. Thank you all very much. Thank you, uh, Senator Shaheen. We're down to about five minutes, uh, and I have Senator Keene, Senator Booker, particularly Senator Booker, who's been with us at the entire meeting. But Senator Keene, you're first in seniority, so uh, have at it. Seniority and looks, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Senator Keene, are you with us? Looks like Senator Booker, you're up. I'm grateful. Uh, make sure somebody tells uh, Senator Kane that I was saying nice things about him behind his oh, back. Oh, I will, believe me. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to thank uh, everyone on uh, the panel for being here. It's been a really substantive discussion and dialogue. I want to get real quick uh, to Conan, uh, Mr. Conandike. And just uh, ask you, you were also a member of the CSIS task force that Senator Young and I co-chaired uh, just last year, and your expertise in producing the report uh, was really invaluable, frankly. Um, and I just thank you for your engagement and your commitment to easing suffering around the world. It was a great experience for me and my team, frankly. I'd like to ask you uh, just some or, or quick questions uh, and hopefully get you succinct answers knowing that we have a, a time limit. Um, understand that we really need global coordination and information sharing to bring COVID-19 and other pandemics under control, uh, what would be less costly to the American taxpayer? And, and that's something I think it's a good lens to with, with which to look for. Um, is it less costly to remain in the, in the WHO, in your opinion, or setting up a whole new international global health organization? Uh, 
Thanks. That's a that's a very easy question that I can answer quickly. It's it's much cheaper and easier to stay in the WHO and try to fix it than to set up something new. And we, you know, when I served in the last administration, we looked very hard at this question, as Ambassador Colfer will remember, uh, trying to figure out what to do with WHO after it it really dropped the ball badly on Ebola in 2014. And uh, we gave serious consideration to a range of options. And what we came back to was both the kind of the least expensive, but also the most effective solution was to try and make WHO work. And, and that prompted the creation of the health emergencies program, uh, which over the last few years, I think has, has proven has, has proven the concept. Um, I would point most, uh, most to the Ebola outbreak in Congo over the last two years, an incredibly complex outbreak, which WHO was able to handle, um, you know, largely without the kind of intensive support it got from the U.S. and U.K. during the West Africa outbreak. You know, there was no deployment of 3,000 U.S. military personnel. There was no deployment of uh, hundreds of CDC and USAID civilian personnel. And WHO still got the job done. And the U.S. spent far less, um, contributed far less to the Congo outbreak than we had to do, you know, the billions of dollars that we spent containing the West Africa outbreak. So I think there's very good return on investment in working to make WHO work. Well, let me ask you the same kind of balance sheet uh, cost-benefit analysis, what would demand less resources from the State Department working through the existing system to reform the WHO or corralling the entire international community to join a new organization to do what the WHO already does? Uh, yeah, of course, it's the same answer. And, and I would add, I think the rest of the world is not as upset with WHO as the, as the Trump administration is. You know, we are not seeing other countries uh, threaten to abandon WHO or even launch uh, lodge criticism towards WHO the way the U.S. has. So I don't think there's any appetite for that. The U.S. would really be, um, you know, banging its head against a brick wall if we are trying to create a new organization without consensus from the rest of the world on that. But it's more than just banging your head against the wall. You know, what is it's so resource intensive, correct, to try to go out and develop relationships Absolutely. with every health minister in every country in the world, as opposed to just tapping into the relationships that the WHO has already developed over decades and where its presence, frankly, is already accepted and welcomed when some of the countries are well, our presence, uh, un understandably, with uh, a lot of the state of the globe right now wouldn't be welcomed. Is that correct? That's, that's very well stated. You know, one thing I have seen in, in my years doing this work is that the, the WHO is almost an extension of the health ministry in many developing countries. And that is not a, you know, that is not a role that a new organization could just take over. Uh, we need to capitalize. That, that's a huge advantage for WHO. It's one that they could capitalize on better with their emergency work and they're beginning to do so. But I don't think you could just create something new and expect to have that same sort of uh, deep relationship and trust that WHO has with, with health, the health ministries that need to be partners on this. And, and in terms of just making America less safe, is it, you know, replicate, trying to replicate the WHO's solidarity trial, um, which is the, you know, the world's largest clinical trial of COVID-19 therapies, coalition of 300 scientists exchanging scientific results as they test vaccines, or really being sort of isolated, going at it uh, uh, to determine the effect, effect, efficacy of, of vaccines ourselves. That, that doesn't seem a wise way to go. Yeah, we should be spreading our bets when it comes to vaccines. I mean, I'm glad to see the, the Warp Speed program that the administration has launched. We need that. But we shouldn't be putting all our eggs just in that basket. And if there are other, other mechanisms that might pay off uh, sooner, you know, we don't know which of these things ultimately is going to hit first. So we want to have a hand in, in all of them. Yeah, and that's the challenge is I, I hear 
um, this idea of using taxpayer dollars wisely. And it just seems uh, on a lot of levels, uh, just so deeply unwise, not to mention wildly fiscally irresponsible um, to, to uh, try to remove ourselves from the WHO and then think that we're going to be able to replicate that without extreme expense, putting ourselves in jeopardy, putting American health, uh, um, uh, health, uh, health and well-being at risk. Uh, and so I, I just really quickly, in the, in the last seconds I have remaining, I want to go to Dr. Ja. Um, um, I don't, uh, I'm not sure if Americans really know the role the WHO plays in just the seasonal flu vaccine, for example, and ending our involvement in the WHO will, for the first time, cut the government, U.S. government rather, out of the development of the seasonal, seasonal influenza vaccine uh, uh, from the Southern Hemisphere, which is a process co that's actually coordinated by the WHO in partnership with the United States. So just really quickly, do, do we know for sure how or if the U.S. would maintain access to the most up-to-date information needed to develop uh, uh, the vaccine? Uh, how important it is, is it for the U.S. and for Americans, in your opinion, to take the flu shot every year? And what would be the consequences for the world of not sharing and coordinating information and the processes themselves for the development of the seasonal flu vaccine? If you could just give me a window on that, and then I'll yield back to the chairman. Uh, Senator Booker, thank you. A uh, couple of very quick remarks on that. Yes, we develop a new flu vaccine the world does every year. Uh, Ten institutions from around the world come together to collaborate, uh, including American institutions, since all done under the aegis of the, of the WHO. I have no idea whether we continue to be able to be engaged and, and have a hand. But what I know is that if we could not access that information and if we had to go it alone, our ability to make the right bets, create the right vaccine every year, would be substantially diminished. And that would, as you know, the flu, uh, while you know nothing like the current coronavirus, is still a deadly virus and, and especially affects older Americans. And a vaccine is incredibly helpful. And if our vaccines became far less effective, uh, the, the main people who would suffer from that are the American people. So um, there are a lot of questions about what we would be able to continue to engage in walking away from WHO, in my mind, it's a no-brainer. It would leave the American people much worse off. And the influenza vaccine is just one example of how the American people would be hurt by this decision. I'm grateful for that. And thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll, I'll yield back. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Booker. And thank you for being with us uh, for this uh, entire hearing. Um, we're past time, but Senator Murphy has joined us. I know he's supposed to be in a very important meeting with a distinguished member of the body right now, but uh, we'll certainly... Uh, I'll welcome him and uh, give him a shot at this. Uh, and so, uh, Senator Murphy, Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I will just ask one question. I know I'm a little late to the party here, um, but I, there is one topic that we have not covered that I think might be important to hear from at least Ambassador Dybul on. Um, and, and that is the status of global health infrastructure. Uh, what we've learned in combating viruses in West Africa is that um, fragile local public health infrastructure makes it very, very difficult to respond to new and evolving diseases. And um, I know, Ambassador, you were involved in the creation of the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, which has been um, a huge success in tackling those diseases, but the mandate of the fund is really limited to those diseases. And right now, there's not um, a robust global financing mechanism by which we can muster partners together to go and just help um, build and rebuild uh, local public health infrastructure 
and then also partner with nations to try to prompt reforms in uh, the way that um, uh, they govern their public health infrastructure space. Uh, so one of the things we've talked about across the aisle is whether there's a need for the United States to stand up that kind of capacity with other partners um, and on a non-disease specific basis, go in and work with nations where we know there's vulnerabilities and we know there's likely going to be uh, future viruses and pandemics and just do some basic building block work of public health infrastructure where it's lacking. Um, so I just wanted your thoughts quickly on you know, how we go about doing that work, whether that can be done at the Global Fund or whether we need to uh, do that kind of work through a, another uh, entity, the WHO, a, a new authority um, prompted by uh, congressional action. Your thoughts? Uh, thank you, Senator Murphy. I, and it's an extraordinarily important question, especially right now. A couple of quick points. Um, from a technical perspective, technical support, WHO plays a critical role, uh, as was just mentioned, often the WHO is an extension of the ministries of health in countries. So they do play a critical role on the technical side, but not on the financing side. And so the financing piece is a little bit different. The Global Fund would have the capacity, certainly with new money now, um, uh, to scale up support to countries for infrastructure, for procurement, for the pieces that are necessary to respond to COVID right now. I think for the longer term, it would be an open question where the best international facility is. We had a little discussion about that a little bit earlier. I would also point out that, you know, there are different approaches and we saw this, right? Um, Taiwan had a relatively low tech approach versus South Korea's relatively high tech approach. Because of the investments the US and others have made uh, in HIV, TB, malaria, vaccination, maternal and child health, South Africa's field 28,000 community health workers to go out and do contact tracing. Sierra Leone has 9,000. Um, uh, in the Ebola crisis, it was those workers that went around that were repurposed in a sense from what had gone into the institution building. But we absolutely need more laboratory capacity. We need more structure. And this is where the complementary uh, opportunities for CDC, and which does this all the time, and GHSA, USAID bilaterally, but then multilaterally without a financing institution to complement the technical institutions, we won't be able to get there. Um, and I believe, and I'm a little biased having run the Global Fund, uh, but I also ran PEPFAR, so I, I have both perspectives. Um, they could do, they could absorb money now while the conversation is going on for what it would do for the future. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Um, that pretty much uh, runs us out of time, but uh, Senator Menendez, did you want to, uh, first of all, let me thank the panelists. Uh, it's been incredibly frank and, uh, and frank. fair, uh, uh, good faith, uh, honest broker exchange of ideas, and uh, I really appreciate that. On behalf of the committee, I want to thank each and every one of you for spending the four hours with us. Senator Menendez, did you want anything uh, for the order here as we close? Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, with with your indulgence, uh, if I could ask Mr. Kanandak one quick question, just so I could uh, sure. devise uh, responses to what you're trying to do, uh, and then and and with my thanks to everybody because it's been I echo the chairman's remarks, been ex extraordinarily helpful and insightful. Uh, Mr. Kanandak, do you mentioned in your testimony that your team at USAID and the counterparts at CDC? Uh, define each agency's roles clearly 
at the outset of the response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa based on each institution's respective comparative advantages. A provision that we have in the legislation that we drafted uh, clearly spells out the roles of state USAID and CDC in the pandemic response. Is such a provision useful in your view? And if so, why? And secondly, a, uh, another provision creates a special advisor at the White House rather than the State Department. What's your view on having a coordination function at the White House? Thank you, Senator. I'll be very brief. Um, I would I say that defining- I think you muted yourself because I can't hear oh. you. Um, how about now? Are you able to hear me now? I, I, this, this Jim Rich, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'll try this again. Uh, so I think that it is, it is not just helpful, I think it's essential to define each agency's comparative advantages up front. Um, and I think that the provision in, in your bill is, is um, you know, it is, it is on the right path there. Um, uh, the, you know, when it's clear what each agency is supposed to do, there's far less to fight over, there's far less turf battling, and that's what we saw uh, during the Ebola outbreak. On the, um, on the White House uh, piece, I wouldn't say that you need the White House coordinating instead of the State Department. I think um, you know, one of the, the helpful things with the counter-ISIL model was that it was a sort of uh, partnership and I, I spoke uh, earlier this week with Brett McGurk, who served in the Envoy role, just to pick his brain a little bit on how that worked in preparing for this hearing. You know, and he talked about the partnership he had in his team with the, the NSC, because the NSC has coordination leverage that, frankly, the State Department just does not have vis-a-vis -vis other agencies. So I think that you need both. I think a, a coordinator based at the State Department synced with a restored global health security directorate and, a, and an empowered senior director at the White House is probably the best structure. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. And again, thank you to our panel. Uh, I, I think we've uh, all learned uh, a lot that's going to help us uh, move all down the field and try to get to uh, a place that, uh, that will make the world a better place in America. Thank you all. And with that, the uh, hearing is adjourned.